G'day and welcome to episode 2 of Chasing Majors with legendary caddy Steve Williams and myself, golf journalist Evan Priest. In episode 1, we explored the 99 PGA Championship where Tiger captured his second career major and first with Steve on the bag. In this episode, we'll take you back to the 2000 US Open at the iconic Pebble Beach where Tiger romped to the most dominant victory in the history of the majors and where his legend truly began to grow. Proudly brought to you by Bluebet, a true blue Aussie betting company. All right, Steve, welcome to episode two of Chasing Majors, and I'm I'm absolutely excited to rip into this episode because this is this is the most dominant performance in the history of the majors. This is the 2000 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, and not only did Tiger win that by 15 shots, he was the only player under par that week, and we're going to get stuck into that. But just before we do, I've got a funny story I want to bring up with you because. I think one of the most instrumental um, aspects of Tiger's performance in the year 2000, which was just phenomenal, was the Nike Tour Accuracy Golf Ball. And basically, Tiger had gone from a wound ball to a solid core ball, and it absolutely changed the game. And Nike had been developing it with Tiger, testing all sorts of locations uh, you know, all across the USA, and finally they had got it to Tiger's liking. And Tiger wanted to put it in play um, at the Deutsche Bank, or you know, the, the tournament in Germany, and so he, he gives Nike a call and he says, hey, can you, can you bring some balls over to Germany? I really want to put it in play. So they scramble, they jump on a flight. Uh, the, the engineer, guy called Rock Ishii and Kel Devlin, who was the son of Bruce Devlin, who was the head of Nike marketing. And they jump on a plane and they come to Germany and they walk up to you in a practice round. You're on the first tee waiting for Tiger to get there. And you look at the two of them, you look at Rock and Kel and you say, what the fuck are you two idiots doing here? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, hey, look, it's yeah, that it sounds like me some days, but um, it was Wednesday, Pro Am Day, uh, TPC of Europe, and it's the day before the tournament's kicking off. So I was sort of thinking that, that they would scramble and get those golf balls to us on Tuesday so that we could hit some on the range, perhaps, or we could hit some during the practice. But, you know, Wednesday is the warm up day before the tournament starts. You're sort of almost in tournament mode. And, and, and now we're going to be sort of testing some golf balls and that. So, yeah, it was pretty interesting. But um, I, I, at the end of that day, we actually, at the end of the completion of the play and then everybody had left the range, um, we spent a little bit of time on the range um, just making sure exactly we knew that the, the golf ball that we hoped that they designed for Tiger was specifically the one that he, you know, he, he'd asked for and, and, and so forth. And we made sure it was the right one and so forth. But yeah, hey, look, they were they were great characters. There's a huge <laughs> amount of effort went into designing that ball. And, and, you know, obviously Tiger had a big part of that uh, with Rock uh, and getting a golf ball designed and that suited his game particularly. Like if you play a Titans ball, Callaway ball, TaylorMade, they make several balls in that and you have to adjust the one that, of the ball that best suits you but this is a case where here's a guy and an engineer and a company making a golf ball specifically for tiger and then of course anybody else can use it but here's you know this ball is specifically built for tiger's clubhead speed the spin that he wants 
the characteristic that he wants to see in the golf ball is right here. So it was a big moment in Tiger's career and a big moment for Nike because they know that if they make a golf ball and they enter the golf market and put a golf ball on the market that Tiger's using, that they're going to sell golf balls, not only the one he's using, but they're going to sell you know some average type golf balls to the weekend player. And it's a big part of the Nike golf um, getting you know onto the golf ball ladder. What about you? How, how much did it change the way you caddied for Tiger? Did you have to sort of react and watch the ball flight closely and, and, and be able to adjust to the different flights and what clubs and shots that you'd suggest going forward? Was it much of a change for you? Yeah, we, we, we spent a lot of time in Iowa there. You know, Tiger had a couple of hundred balls in his practice bag. Obviously, took all the balls that he wasn't using out and, and put the tour accuracy one. And you know, he would go through the same array of shots and that. But it was just a lot more ease for him to do exactly what he wanted. So, you know, when he was trying to hit that stinger shot, he'd be, you know, he'd really have to concentrate on hitting it low and all the mechanics that went with it. But this ball, when he's, you know, he didn't, because it was designed so well, specifically what he wanted to do, he'd hit the shots that he needed just with more ease and more confidence. So it, it was, you know, heading into the 2000 season, this this ball uh, was going to be a big factor, I felt. So so for the layman at home, the, the average listener, um, the, 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 the difference that this golf ball made to Tiger was that he could hit the shots he wanted to hit, the trajectories, whether he wanted to hit it low, whether he wanted to hit it high or medium, he could do that with much more ease and trust that the golf ball was going to react the way that he wanted to. Yeah, so you know, a lot of times, you know, you make a swing and you, you feel like you've made a swing to make the, the ball flight how you think you've, you, you, you've done it. And you look up and say, hell, that's higher than I thought I should have hit it. That's lower than I should have hit it. Here's a case where he's had a ball that's designed specific for him. He's confident with it. And he knows when he makes that swing to hit that low shot, medium shot, high shot, he looks up and this ball's doing it. That's a tremendous amount of confidence. Uh, that builds in, in, in your trust in, in the ball. And, you know, along with the clubs and everything, the footwear and everything else that you, you use as a golfer to make it, this is just one more part of the jigsaw that completes the perfect setup as far as equipment goes for Tiger. If you could put an estimate on it, like like try to do this for me, even if it's, if, if it's either the technology in the golf ball or the confidence it gives Tiger, either one, could you estimate on the shots per round the advantage that this new ball gave Tiger? Yeah, look, I mean, I think basically it's just the confidence thing. So when you've got a golf ball that's reacting every time to how you want to hit it, um, I think that just frees you up and it's confidence. I mean, you, you, you know, you'd have to say it's worth one or two shots around for sure because it's just, wow. it, it gives you so can much. You ima- can you imagine giving Tiger two more shots around? That's, that's insane. Yeah, well, look, I can give you the complete opposite of that, Evan, and you would be well aware of this. Tiger, um, you know, went to that Nike ball. And it absolutely suited him. Way back in the 80s, Greg Norman played Spalding. He went to the Tour Edition ball, and the and he was obviously pl- paid a lot of money to play uh, Spalding and got paid a lot of money to use this new golf ball. And that was so detrimental to his career. It was the worst thing he ever did. And that wow. would have cost him two shots around. Um, Holy shit. Really? Yeah, so, yeah, that was like... He, if he had played a different golf ball to Augusta, Greg Norman, he would have won the tournament. I have absolutely no qualms in saying that. I mean, if he had, if he had any other ball than that, the Tour Edition, it was famous because it spun more than any other golf ball. He liked that, but it spun too much. And, and back in those days, he didn't have the advantage of having all this technology to, to be able to tell you how far the ball's going, you know, track man and all this. But there's none of that available. You know, you, you just think, oh, this ball spins good and so forth. But that's, that's the exact opposite of what Tiger did here. Hey, a lot of Aussies wouldn't like hearing that, that that Greg would have won the Masters if he had stuck to the old ball, but it's probably true. It probably spun too much, right? Oh, there's no question. 
a couple of years of the years that I did carry for him, I know for a fact if he was using a better golf ball than the one he was using right then, he would have won. I don't have any question that. And I think if you asked him that question himself, he'd, he'd, and, and yeah. he'd tell you the same answer. It's just nuts to think that Tiger put, you know, introduced a piece of equipment that gave him at least one, potentially two shots advantage. He was already the best player in the world. That is, that's nuts. Yeah, I mean, but you know, it, it, Tiger's a, you know, he's a great player, but you know, he's a student of the game and, and he he studies everything and, and he puts a lot of time. You know, this golf ball didn't come by accident. There was a tremendous. I mean, this ball was a, you know, when Tiger first signed with Nike. It was one of the projects, so it just wasn't an overnight project. There was a couple of years of engineering that went into developing the sport and getting it exactly right, and it wasn't going to be put into play until such time that it was exactly how he wanted it. And I, I promise we'll move on for the, from the golf ball, but could you notice a shot around the greens, particularly the way it spun and reacted, that he was maybe better at doing with this new golf ball, the way it reacted? Was there like well, a... Low running chip shot or a high flop shot or a spinny. You know, it was wet. just it was just so consistent. Um, and every time he wanted to play that lowest pitch shot, it came out exactly how he wanted to. When he wanted to hit that flop shot, it came out as high than he wanted to, and it was amazing out of the bunkers. It just did exactly what it you know. It would always take one hop check and then run a little bit. It was very very consistent. Um, you know, so I mean, like I said, that's a big part of your arsenal. Yeah. All right, um, and if we go back to 1999, so 99 is the first year that you start catting for Tiger. Um, the stress of trying to help him win the first major with you on the bag, you got that done at the 99 PGA. What was 99 like in general for you adjusting to the added fame, the added scrutiny, the added pressure of caddying for Tiger Woods? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously I caddied for Greg Norman for a stint there when he was the number one player in the world and, and probably at that particular point in time, he, he, he was the, you know, the he was the Tiger Woods, you know, that's what he was like. He, he was the most popular player with the galleries and he was a flamboyant player, an aggressive player, and people loved to watch him play. And then, you know, you go to Tiger, it's just another step up. But, um, you know, it's a, it was a big jump, but because I'd carried for Greg for a number of years and that, and, and, and you know, when Greg played in Australia, I mean, he was like a rock star when he was in Australia. I mean, he, you know, he, he was big and he was popular. Uh, it was just on a different scale with Tiger. But, um, you know, the, winning the PGA Championship there at Medina in 99, that was, you know, that was just a huge relief off my shoulders because I, I knew how much this guy put into major championships and what it meant to him and his whole career's focused around them. And I, I didn't want to be catting for him for two or three years and not get a major championship because I don't think I would have lasted or he would, you know, he, he would have <laughs> wanted to change that. So, you know, the only thing, you know, whilst he won, I think eight tournaments in 1999, unbelievable. But apart from that, the only thing I remember is we got over the hump, not over the hump, but we were successful in achieving our first major championship. I felt like I made an important call on the 16th hole there on the par three that, you know, Tiger trusted me and it was the right call. And I believe that was, you know, and that's what cemented our place. He, um, well, one of the funniest things I've ever actually seen is uh, he um, he sent me uh, a picture from him holding the trophy um, and then he had me um, sort of mounted behind a sheep. It's like saying, great call on this hole, you sheep shagger. <laughs> <laughs> I knew we were off to a good start there. So, um, so the Amer Americans or you know overseas listeners who might not know that joke, a, a common joke is you know a, is that the Kiwis are sheep shaggers. It's it's what we call you. It's what Australians call Kiwis to put shit on you. How how did he learn about that joke? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't I don't really know, but I mean, you know, 
everybody in New Zealand, you know, these, these 35 million sheep and 3 million people, they think, well, everyone just shags sheep here because there's so many of them. So he, he, it was pretty funny, like, you know, and that, that, that was a, you know, a very humorous moment and something yeah. I laughed about. And, but, um, yeah, are you no, guys are you guys friends by this stage? Would you, would you have considered him a friend by the beginning of two thousand? Well, I, mean, I, I went with Tiger with the attitude that you know when I was caring for Greg, the, the the downfall that I had with Greg that was at the parting of the ways there was because we got too friendly. Okay. And the very first thing that I said to myself when I went to care for Tiger is I didn't I wanted to keep it strictly work and not become friends, but. Um, I, I guess we just sort of hit it off and, and we did become friends, but I don't think that friendship ever deterred our partnership on the golf course, which was more important because I'd learned that from Greg. So how do you think, how, how were you able to balance? Because it sounds like you couldn't help be friends with Tiger, right? You guys got along too well and you spent too much time together, but you knew that a mistake that you made with Greg was that, like you said, you were, you were too friendly. How did you now become friends with Tiger, but work for him, but somehow make it work because you did. Yeah, well, look, if I hadn't a caddy for Greg, it wouldn't have ever happened because, I, you know, I learned from my mistakes, which was great. And, ba- you know, basically when you get to the golf course, you've got to remember you're just, the you, you know, whilst you're a friend, but now you just put on the caddy hat and you only say things that you'd say as a caddy and not as a friend. Um, yeah. So it's strictly business, strictly work. And throughout my whole relationship with Tiger, we kept that that way. And I, like I said, I only learned that from caddying for Greg. I made the mistake with Greg of, uh, saying some things that I shouldn't have said as a caddy because I thought I was a well, we were friends, but <laughs> so yeah, that was a, you know like I was very fortunate to caddy for Tiger, and, and I, I've said this often that you know had I've never caddy for Greg Norman, I probably wouldn't have never got that opportunity because Greg was just so good to me, uh, and he you know he taught me the ropes, and 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 that was something I learned from caddying for Greg. Yeah, chasing majors is proud to partner with X Blades who have been internationally renowned for decades for producing world-class football boots and performance apparel for athletes across rugby union, rugby league, Aussie rules and netball. The team at X-Blades are passionate about grassroots and community sport and that's why they're about to bring their credentials to golf with an exciting golf apparel range launching this year. Watch this space and keep listening to Chasing Majors. At the end of 99, I'm, I'm sure that you and Tiger and Mark Steinberg, his agent, you all sat down for a meeting and assessed the performances of the year. I mean, it was a great year. Tiger won nine times, uh, eight with you on the bag. Um, what were the end of year meetings like for Team Tiger? Like, What did you bring to the table and say, this is what we did well and this is what we could have done better? And what did sort of the others say as well? Yeah, well, basically, you know, I, I like to keep my own statistics um, and, and, and I'd log, you know, how many wedges we've hit, how many nine irons, how many eight irons, and if there's any patterns, you know, was there a club that there was a weakness? He missed more greens with one club. Or was there, there, you know, all the weaknesses, and what could we, how could we get better? I kept, you know, I, I kept how many times he got it up and down from a hundred yards, and how many times he got it up and down for seventy yards. How many, you know, all these different statistics, because um, back then. They weren't as readily available as they are nowadays. You can sort of get everything now, but back then there wasn't. But, but my statistics would vary a little bit from the PJ Tour statistics anyway. But I would tell him what he needed to work on to get better for the following year. And I did that every year. Um, and, and what what part of his game, or was there a club that didn't perform better than some of the other clubs and so forth? And there always was. That one year it was a five iron, this year it was a seven iron. You know, he'd have a club that he didn't hit as good as some other clubs uh, as far as the percentage of hitting the greens. 
and you know then there'd be always you know a bit of a talk about the scheduling and you know and and so forth and you know what courses suited them better and what taunts are better and the major championship how they fitted in what taunts prior to the majors what ones were after and yeah it was it was all pretty straightforward but what my part was just giving him some statistics to be based from what i'd collected during the year of how he could get better to put you on the spot can you remember maybe what you would have suggested to tiger at the end of 99 what he could have done better or tournaments that he should be playing or anything like that um in, in 1999 um he, he had in my eyes after the first period of caring for him he had a, certainly had a weakness around the 90 to 120 mark um okay. his, Proximity to the pin was not good, and his birdie percentage of the amount of times he hit those clubs uh, was staggeringly low compared mm. to sort of the seven, eight times. He was tremendous with the six, seven, and eight, and, and should have been percentage wise better with the nine wedge sand iron. He wasn't. So, in 1999 to 2000, on the off season, that was the thing that I commented to him that he needs to get better as far as the proximity to his pin from 90 to 120 yards. And um, you know, every time, every one thing I have to say about Tiger, every time that I said at the end of the year, there's something he needed to work on to get better at. I mean, he did. And and, and it wasn't just something I was making up. I mean, I'd have statistics. Yeah. And he would take that on board and he would practice. I mean, I, you know, he was, he was amazing like that. Well, that's phenomenal. It sounds like those meetings were so productive and they must have been because he kicks off 2000 exactly like he left it in 1999 and that's winning. He, he wins the Tournament of Champions on Maui, and then he goes to the Pebble Beach Pro-Am, which is, of course, going to host the US Open, you know, five or whatever it months, however many months later. Um, can you talk about, like, I think from memory, he comes from seven shots back with nine holes to play, and he wins the Pebble Beach Pro-Am. It was just phenomenal. Do you think that set the tone a little bit for the US Open and his confidence at Pebble Beach, or are the conditions too dissimilar from February when the Pebble Beach Pro-Am is played to a USGA-hosted baked out us open at pebble beach what, what was yeah. yeah that's a great call yeah look it, it, whilst it's the same course it, it has no resemblance of how it's going to play six months later as a usga um british open uh, us open so like i mean he, he, he loved the course loves being in california relishes a chance to play at pebble beach but between the two of them you know i mean you know it's obviously a confidence builder but you, you know as you know the fairways are going to be narrow the greens are going to be different everything's going to be different um the pin placements you know the at&t because it has that amateur element in it you know the pin placements aren't quite as tough and so forth and it's all it's completely different the, the the takeaways or the confidence takeaways that he would he would he would you know take out of pebble beach was it just like the confidence knowing he can hit the lines that he wants to hit and execute the shots and putt on those California Poana greens? Or like, it, what would he have taken from Pebble Beach and think and thought, okay, that's great to know for the US Open? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing that he would have taken there is he hit, he hit a lot of fairways um, in that AT&T Invitational. And, you know, even though the fairways are going to be narrowed in when the USGA... He knows that he's got a good feel. Like when you get some courses, you have a good feel for hitting the fairways and some you don't. Well, he had a good feel there. So that was going to be important because you know the fairways is going to be narrower and it's going to be tougher. You know, obviously the rough is going to be completely different for a USGA event compared to a, a tournament that has the amateur component um, involved with it. So, but I mean, you know, Pebble Beach is an iconic place. I mean, whether you played in the AT&T tournament or didn't, I don't really think that, you know, Tiger, it's one of those iconic venues 
everyone likes to get their name on the US Open trophy. It just has that sort of asterisk beside it when it's at Pebble Beach. It's like when the Open Championships at St. Andrews. Yes, everyone wants to win the Open, but when it's at St. Andrews, it's just got something more to it. And I think Pebble Beach is the same with the US Open. So, Steve, we move on to he gets another victory at the Bay Hill Invitational, a place where he, he really made his hay there. And then we move on to the Masters. And the 2000 Masters at Augusta National, that's remembered for the terrible weather. It's one of the terrible weather Masters, right? Heavy rain, wind gusts up to 40 miles an hour. They lash the tournament. Tiger starts poorly with an opening 75. And then he sort of bursts into contention, in contention by the Saturday. And he finishes fifth behind Vijay Singh, who went on to win his first green jacket. What are your memories of the 2000 Masters? Yeah, like you said, the conditions there were um, probably like no other time when the Masters been played over four days, given the, 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 the weather conditions. But, you know, when you start off at a major championship and you start with 75, you're just behind the eight ball. Um, it's very, very difficult um, to start with a 75, particularly when it was soft. Um, and that just makes it difficult when you're playing catch-up golf. But, you know, he was still in good form. You know, he just some weeks he was a little off. Um, and, and that week, you know, he, he bides, puts so much effort into the major championships and tries to peak for them. Um, and, and that week he didn't. So, um, you know, he, he, he was certainly put that one behind him very quickly and was really focused on the US Open coming up at Pebble. But, but the signs were there, weren't they? Because he, he finishes fifth and that, that's still a great result at the Masters. Um, and that, that's despite a, a poor opening round. He then wins the Memorial Tournament again. Were you kind of heading to Pebble Beach thinking we're a really good chance of winning the US Open here? Yeah, look, he he has, a, like I said, he has a knack of getting himself to peak for these major championships. And at the Memorial Tournament, the iron play was really, really good. Um, still driving it reasonably good, putting pretty good, but the iron play was really, really good. And I knew that if he could just sharpen up the driver uh, just a little bit, and you know he he always puts pretty decent, um, that he would be in for you know a, a good chance. He was certainly in great form, and you, you, you know heading into the tournament the weeks before, we were really enthusiastic about it. When you got to Pebble Beach, was there anything that indicated what was about to happen? Was was he swinging the golf club extra special? Was he? you know, driving it better, like you just mentioned, or was everything coming together? Or was there something that sort of signaled that this is going to be one of the most dominant performances in the history of the majors? Look, when you look back, it's amazing because right from the moment he struck his first practice shot in practice to the 72nd hole, it was just unbelievable. We all knew something was going to happen that week. Uh, He had a great friend, a bloke by the name of Sam Reeves, who, who lives out at... Um, Pebble Beach there and he was a great friend with Tom Crow, the Australian manufacturer who started Cobra and That's right, yeah. th- these guys came to a lot of major championships Sam was great mates with Butch Harmon and, and Sam walked every major championship for many years and even he noticed from the walking from the sidelines that something was special um, and I remember Mark O'Meara said to me during one of the practice rounds, he said, you know, something to the fact that, like, Steve, I mean, it's, uh, when is he going to minister shot? I mean, he it was one, he, he just, he was right in the group. Everything was matched up. I mean, I, I'd not seen him swing better, have better tempo, a feel for the shot. And it was one of those weeks where, you know, you just want to make sure he doesn't play too many practice rounds, hit too many practice balls. But you, you don't want to 
force that on because they think, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? It's just, you know, da, da, da. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> we all had to be very careful how we went about that. Butch, myself, Tiger, that, you know, you didn't overdo it because sometimes you can have so much form and then you can just do a little bit too much practice and you lose it. So, but I think Tiger knew in himself that, that, that he was swinging as good as he, his practice rounds. I mean, it's like, well, I was thinking after the first practice round, like, we don't really need another practice round, man. You, you're just ready to go. But, you know, this is on Sunday, um, Monday before the Sunday, Monday before the tournament. It's like, well, it's just, Thursday seems a long way away. Let's, how, how can we just bottle this up and not, you know, not lose yeah. it? <laughs> When when it's obvious that Tiger is really playing special and swinging the club special, and like, did you have to go to Butch Butch Harmon, Tiger's swing coach at the time, and sort of work out a plan where you need to get Tiger in a frame of mind and keep him in that frame of mind without letting him know? Like like you just mentioned, you don't want him to over practice and and you know do some damage or whatever it might be, but you don't want him to under practice either, and you certainly don't want to let him know what you're doing. So would you sort of grab Butch to the side and say, hey? I think we're a really good chance of winning if we do this. Would something like that happen? No, I think we all sort of knew what was going on uh, mm. and, and so forth. And, and sometimes like when you're playing a practice round, a lot of times Tiger play a practice round on his own. And, you know, I would challenge him. I'd, I'd throw three balls over here and see if you can get two, or th- two out of three up and down and that. But I didn't want to do too much of that that week because it was just going to get too repetitious and, and everything, everything was ready to go. So the practice rounds needed to just be like playing around the golf, just, you know, play one ball, practice a little bit and keep that feel for what was going. But I mean, I think he knew it himself that, you know, he, he, every time he went to the driving range and, you know, goes through his repertoire of shots, you know, sometimes when he goes to the range and, okay, he's trying to high draw seven iron and it might take two or three shots to get it exactly right. Well, this week, every time he went through his club's, his practice and he was trying to hit the shot he hit it it was just it was incredible <laughs> so i think he he would have known that because you know, like i said sometimes it takes more than one shot to execute the shot you're trying to hit on practice uh, let alone on the golf course but that week even on the practice range every time he went to execute shot he did it was it was actually we, we, we were standing back there sam reese myself and, and tiger and it was I think it was, you know, I, I remember one time being with Ray Floyd and the only time I ever got to watch Ben Hogan and it was right up there with that. It was like, this is a guy that's swinging the golf club as good as he can swing it and he's hitting the ball absolutely how he wants to hit it. It was actually quite, you know, from a golfer's point of view, like a fan point of view, mm. to stand back and actually watch it was unbelievably mesmerizing to actually watch it. And I, I can vividly picture it in my head. Um, you know, Tiger always if there was an opportunity to go to the back of the range where not everybody else was practicing, less people now. And we were doing that at Pebble one time, you can go sort of went back down the other end of the range there and he was practicing one day and it was like, I mean, it's just, you say to yourself, how do you do that? How can you be that good? Was that almost spiritual? Because like in those quiet moments, a golf course when it's quiet is one of the most beautiful things on the planet. And you're sitting there with arguably the greatest golfer who's ever played the game swinging the golf club the the best he's ever swung it and you get to sit there and you get to experience something that nobody else in this life gets to experience and that's tiger woods up close was that almost religious like a religious experience oh no no question about it i mean some of the times when you know often as you would know tiger played his practice rounds that we used to call it you know what time i'll see you tomorrow uh tiger dawn 30 so whatever time daylight is 30, 30 minutes after it's daylight dawn 30 yeah, dawn 30, to see it dawn 30. And some of those mornings, you know, 
say the TPC at Jacksonville, mm-hmm. dawn 30, you're out there 5.30, 5.45 in the morning playing a practice round. He's due on the ground. There's a little mist in the air. There's fog coming up off the ponds and that. I mean, and he's, and he's in good form. I mean, you know, that, that's just like, I mean, there's nothing better because there's no place like being on a golf course early in the morning in my eyes or late in the evening. And, you know, when Tiger was in form sometimes, to be standing there just watching him out on the golf course with no one else there, just myself and him, maybe the coach was here at the time. That's just spiritual right there. Oh, that, that's inc- I got goosebumps hearing that. It, it's amazing. So, uh, like, like like you mentioned, um, Tiger was in form. How much did that raise your level of excitement? And, and did you have to almost contain yourself, knowing that he's probably going to win this one? Yeah, no. You, you, look, you, you just you, as a caddy, that's one thing. There's no more. Every day, every shot, every week's the same. So you you, mm. you can't ever, you know, you can't, you know, put the chicken before the basket, sort of thing here. So. <laughs> You know, obviously, I knew it was going to be a good week. I mean, when you're counting for Tiger and you get a feeling it's going to be a good week, um, but you know, you, you you can't override the fact that you've got to treat every shot the same, every tournament the same, everything, and that's a big part, big role in the caddy. You know, you can't get ahead of yourself. You know, everything. But um, you know, I, I certainly know he was in complete control. And of course, when a guy is playing ex- as good as he can play. He can hit every shot you want the way that you both can describe the shot. So I mean, it, it, you know, when you're caring for a guy that's playing that good, it's a pretty easy job because he can hit the shots. You know, sometimes when a guy's struggling, it's because he, you know, he's not, he's not he, he can't hit the shots that you're trying to hit. You know, and this week when he wanted to hit it right to left, left to right, high, like, he just had it. I mean, so that makes the job easy. So, but you know, you you, you don't get it. You never ever ever get ahead of yourself. What about the venue itself? Can you tell me what it's like as a tour caddy? I'm not talking like the local caddies, but a tour player caddy, what that's like to caddy at Pebble Beach and what do you have to look out for? What do you have to make sure of? And and just what's the overall experience like at, at a US Open, no less? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a fantastic golf course. And, and like the, you know, the key holes there, you know, a seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, to know where the wind is. It can be very tricky on those holes, you know, across the ocean there, you know, you go across a little bit and then you've got the wind coming off the ocean. Sometimes you've got, to, those are the key holes there. You've got to really know and make sure you get the right club selection and know where the wind's coming from. You know, obviously the eighth hole there, it can be treacherous there um, if you make the wrong club selection there and so forth. So those are, those, those are the important holes there at Pebble Beach. You really got to focus on those holes. And, you know, other than that, you know, it's, a, it's just a great golf course and, you know, those tournaments that are on iconic golf courses, you know, they just have that extra atmosphere. You know, it's like I said, when the Open Championships played at St. Andrews um, and the US Open when it comes to somewhere like Pebble Beach, it, it's always exciting at a major. But but when it's at a venue like that, this this is just that much more exciting because everybody's excited. The marshals are excited. The spectators are excited. You know, the people that are working in the food stores are excited. You know, <laughs> you know, it just has that extra vibe to it. You know, you guys in the media, you guys mm. are excited because you know it only happens X, X amount of years and you think, well, the next one's not going to be back into this one. The US Open just happened to be Jack Nicklaus's last one. It's the 100th yep. US Open. I mean, everything about this week stacks up. But it's going to be an unbelievable tournament. And, of course, Tiger was a man when it came to that sort of thing. You know, he lapped up that kind of atmosphere and, and been involved uh, and, and being the 100th US Open, Jack's last one. Um, that just gave Tiger a little bit more oomph. You know, he wanted to be. He, yeah. he, he wants to take the baton from Jack, you know, pass the baton on from Jack. Jack's the best U.S. Open player that's ever played, and, and Tiger wants to show him 
I'm going to be a good US Open player despite what people think of my driving of the golf ball. I'm going to be a US <laughs> Open contender and I'm going to show them. Oh, and, and we'll get into Jack Nicholas because you, you, you're right. It was his last US Open and it made it so much more special. But just finally, before we get into the pre-tournament, um, what about anything else that you had to look out for as a caddy for a US Open at Pebble Beach? You know, because the greens are so small at Pebble, did you have to sort of make sure that Tiger avoided missing on the wrong side and leaving himself short-sighted and, and leaving himself horrible putts on those Poana greens? Or was there anything else like that that you had to look out for? No, no. You, you just, you know, you just always know, like, for instance, the first hole, you've got to keep the ball to the right of the hole and under the hole. Just, nothing, it's no different to any other golf course. But there, you certainly want to be under the hole as often as you can because the greens are typically bumpy and they're not, not and they're power. You want to be able to under the hole so you can hit the putts with a bit more authority. So that you know that with you know every every shot you're playing there, you're trying to keep the ball under the hole just so you can hit the putt with a bit more authority. And finally, most challenging hole uh, to caddy at Pebble Beach. Well, the 18th for good reason. <laughs> we'll get to that later. <laughs> we will, yeah. <laughs> just just the nerves on the tee shot is is that why? Yeah, look, I mean, it, 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 it's a. You know, it, it, it appears to be a lot more narrow than it is. I mean, of course, you've got the ocean on the right and you've got the OB, sorry, the on ocean the le- on the left. left and yep. OB on the right. And, you know, anytime you come to a par five, you know, you, you, when you're caring for a, a player that can reach the green, you know, you, you want to make a four, but you know how this hole is so dangerous. Five's not a bad score here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, per- perfect. All right, Steve, let's, let's get into pre-tournament. Um, and we, we touched on this in the first episode, um, and that's the late, great Payne Stewart. And we'll just refresh people's memories. Payne Stewart was a very popular American golfer. He was a three-time major winner, and he had won the U.S. Open at Pinehurst in 99, only a few months before he'd tragically died in a plane accident. And you and Tiger were both friends with Payne and his Australian wife, Tracy. And it, it was a really rare occurrence that the defending champion of the U.S. Open, or any major, actually wasn't alive to defend his title. So he wasn't there to defend his US Open title at Pebble in 2000. What was the mood like in general at Pebble Beach, you know, knowing that Payne wasn't there anymore? Yeah, look, I mean, it was, you know, it was it was a sad occurrence that he, that he obviously passed away and it's not there to defend his title. Um, I think what people were, you know, were sort of shocked with it, you know, obviously on Wednesday afternoon that there was a special tribute to Payne and, of course, Tiger didn't take part in that, but... Um, you know, Tiger, when it came to major championships, uh, his only thing that he was going to do was play the tournament and give it 100%. There was going to be no other stuff outside of playing practice rounds and competing in the four rounds. He wasn't going to partake in anything else, and that didn't change at the US Open. I think that sort of shocked a lot of people, but that's just the way Tiger operated. Yeah, and, and first of all, to explain what you're talking about, I think it was 40 US Open, US Open competitors. They lined up golf balls on the 18th hole and they hit them out in the ocean, almost like a 21-gun salute um, to pay tribute to Payne Stewart. And Tiger avoided that ceremony and opted instead to play a practice round that he'd already scheduled in. Did you think that was a little bit odd at the time considering how good a friend Tiger was of Payne's or did it just show how determined Tiger was that week? Oh, I just, you know, when it came to major championships, whilst it was only, you know, early on in my career, as far as catting in major championships, I knew that he didn't take in any other activities around a major championship at nothing. I mean, the only thing he would do was attend his, his press conference, which is mandatory uh, when it's when you're in the ranking that he was in. Outside of that, there was no other extra stuff taken in, and then that was no different. And it was, you know, it was a really emotional ceremony and there was fog there. It was almost, you know, like spiritual. Um, but just on, like, in Tiger's defense, 
do you think when something like that happens, that if Tiger attends that event, if he attends that ceremony, all of a sudden the ceremony becomes more about Tiger than it does about pain? Is, is that something to be said? Oh, Evan, that's a great point. And, and regardless of, of what difference it makes, it just does t- change a little bit because Tiger's there as far as the TV goes and, and so forth. But, hey, like I said, I mean, he, he never entertained anything else outside of playing his, his, his practice rounds and competitors rounds at major championships. Like I said, it's mandatory to, do, to attend your press conference. That's the only thing he would do outside of playing his rounds of golf. So this was, you know, he wasn't going to, because if he, if he had have attended that, then down the line, you're going to have other tournaments at major championships. Hey, Tiger, could you just do this? Could you do that? You, you know, you, you feel like if you do it once, you're going to get asked again and you might. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, now, Payne's wife, like I just mentioned, she was an Australian, Tracy, and she made a speech that day, a very moving speech, and she said, if Payne were here in person today, he would say, don't ever give up, don't ever lose hope. Your future is not measured by your past. Keep trusting, keep believing, and keep hoping for the best. With God's help, you can live and die victoriously. It was a really moving speech, and, and I don't know if Tiger sort of saw that maybe on Golf Channel or, or in the media after that, but do you think that Payne's death was a, an added motivation for Tiger to win that U.S. Open? Um, well, I think I'm not sure about Payne, but I think being Jack Nicklaus's last major championship and Tiger's trying to win his first U.S. Open, I think that was more of a motivational thing. And and I'm not taking anything away from Payne, but I think that was really motivational to Tiger. And it was just interesting, as you know, in the tournament that when. Jack was putting out on the 18th green. We were teeing off on the first hole, and there was that incredible <laughs> roar. Um, that was that was really motivating. I, I was watching Tiger then, and he got he got goosebumps there. He was chilled about that, and that, that was that was a big moment. Now that night, Wednesday night, just before the tournament, the U.S. Open, the hundredth U.S. Open is about to kick off at Pebble Beach. Tiger complained of a putting issue. And he said that he was pulling his putts because his hands were too low. And so you, Tiger, and Butch Harmony's coach, you spend a couple of hours on the putting green on Wednesday night. Can you remember that session? And, and how important was that to the overall performance? Yeah, I mean, look, being such a perfectionist, in the practice rounds, he was rolling the ball great. He was putting great. And, you know, being such a perfectionist, he was just, you know, it was those little one percenters. He was just searching. There was something missing that he knew that he could just be that much better. And, of course, he went to the putting when he found it. His posture was a little bit off, and he, and he felt by getting better posture, he was going to release the putter. But it was quite magical, really. Um, it was very late in the evening on Wednesday, and he was there on the putting green. And it was it was just it was just looking for that 1% sort of thing. And, and um, you know, I, I, when, he call, when he called me up and said, hey, I've just decided I need to do some putting practice. I'll see you at the putting green at this time. And, you know, the day was all, had long finished. <laughs> and you're, you're back in your hotel room yeah and then he says i'm just you know da, 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 and that's all good but you know he, he would have been thinking you know okay there's just something i'm putting good but there's something that's going to make me putt better i mean he's always thinking always trying and and, and, and of course he came to that putting green and, and he, it took some time it was a lengthy putting session considering it was the day before the open championship was going to kick off and he found it and yeah. um you know he went on to putt i mean arguably one of his greatest putting performance because he does not like power greens <laughs> <laughs> and, and he didn't have a three putt so so it actually was successful that putting mission 
Oh, look, I mean, he was the only player in the field not to have a three-part. And look, you know, nothing against Pebble Beach, but the power greens there are, are not the best in the world. And not to have a three-part there in a US Open, that is mind-boggling. And, and just sorry to, to put you on the spot here, but when you said improve his posture, wh- what exactly do you mean and how did that improve his putting stroke? Yeah, he just he, he, he just pulled his right shoulder a little back, stood up a little taller, and, and he always liked to have that slightly, you know, he, he felt like... You know the the putting stroke was sort of a little in and, and you know end to end sort of thing. I mean you you release the putter, and by getting his posture a little bit, moving his right shoulder a little bit, standing up a little bit taller, he was able to feel like he was releasing the putter just exactly how he wanted to. So uh, that was a great find. Uh, you know at, at the last minute to at the eleventh hour before the championship. It's amazing how he can diagnose his own game, isn't it? He can just that one little tweak, and he's off and running. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, to the naked eye, to stand there, you know, you couldn't see any difference in his posture or anything. Nothing, you know, it was just a, a minuscule tweak of the shoulders, a little raise of the head. Boom, got it. Chasing Majors is made possible by our friends over at Bluebet. Bluebet is the true blue Aussie betting company which offers plenty of markets in professional golf. Bet on your favourite golfers on various tours around the world, including every tournament on the US PGA Tour, both pre-tournament and in-play bets like first-round leaders and three-ball betting. There'll also be plenty of markets for the majors, starting with the upcoming Masters in April. One of my favourite bets on the Bluebet app is Tiger to win a major in 2022, and I think we'd all love to see him make another comeback. So head over to bluebet.com.au or download the Bluebet app from the iPhone or Android app stores and gamble responsibly. So, all right, Steve, we move on to round one, the, the round one of the 100th US Open at Pebble Beach. And uh, there were pretty early signs that this was going to be, this was something different. There was something different in the air about this US Open. Hal Sutton, who had actually beaten Tiger to win the Players' Championship only three months before that, he holed out an eight iron from the fairway uh, on the first hole to record the first opening hole eagle in US Open history. So it's off to a flyer. Tiger's group with uh, Swedish golfer Jesper Panovic and Jim Furyk, good friend of Tiger's, and there's one shot I want to talk about that day, Steve, and that's Tiger's third shot at the 14th hole, the, the par five up the hill away from the ocean. Tiger was in, in thick rough, you know, near the green, and he had to hit a pitch shot sort of under a tree and over a bunker. And not only did he do that, but he hit it to two feet and tapped in for birdie. Can you remember that shot? Yeah, look, I mean, look, he, he executed the shot exactly how he wanted to execute it, but there's a lot of luck there because you have no way of knowing how that ball's going to come out. It could bounce left, it could bounce right, it could bounce up in the air. So, you know, yes, he, he had a good shot. He kept it under the tree and he hit it into the bank just before the green started. So it was a well-executed shot, a lot of luck. So he goes on to shoot a 65 in the in the opening round to take the first round lead at six under par with Miguel Angel Jimenez from Spain, one shot back, and American John Houston at four under. But severe fog was about to roll in, wasn't it, Steve, that afternoon? And 75 golfers would be forced to finish their first rounds on Friday morning. Do you think that Tiger was kind of lucky that week that he teed off early on Thursday morning? Yeah, look, I mean, when it's the US Open, I think that was very good for Tiger because getting the early start on Thursday, knowing you know, he had the feel, everybody in, around in the Tiger camp knew that he was going to be having a good week here, possibly an exceptional week, given the way he played in his practice rounds. Getting an early tee time Thursday, which typically the conditions, 
are never going to get any easier. You know, if it's a US Open, how the USGA runs it, throughout the week, conditions only get tougher. So Thursday morning are ideal conditions, generally as good as it's going to get at a US Open, unless the weather plays a factor. So that was a good, you know, that was a good omen just right there, getting getting that position. So you can get your first round in, particularly played flawless, just like you did in the practice rounds. 65, great start. And, you, and now you can sit back and relax a little bit. Okay, it was going to be a lengthy time. I don't think they teed off on Friday till somewhere around the four o'clock mark. So from when he finished on Thursday morning to starting his second round on Friday, a long time. But, you know, you adjust, you get used to that. But, yeah, I think the first round getting an early tee time was great. You know, and, and it's intimidating because Tiger Woods gets to set the pace in the morning. Absolutely. You know, you, you, Tiger puts his name up on top of that board. You know, you know how it all works out. You know, it's a small world, all the golfing. Johnny Miller came out during one of the practice rounds and, and, and was just amazed at how he was playing. Roger Maltby was amazed how he was playing. And they would have told people. That, so the word would have got around that, hey, Tiger Woods is in some kind of form this week. It's just how it goes. Um, and of course, the players themselves—they all find out that the caddy's knowing that, and he puts his name up on top of the leaderboard. That just makes things that little bit more difficult, right there. Yeah, it's a really good point. It's like it's like intimidation through osmosis, you know, Correct. like a like a magnetic field. So, um, now you mentioned it before. This is going to be Jack Nicklaus's last ever U.S. Open. It's very emotional, very special. And there are a few moments throughout the week, or you know, up until he sort of missed the cut on the Friday, that, that made it really, really special and memorable. And one of those is because Payne Stewart had passed away, the USGA, who obviously run the US Open, they gave his defending champion tea time to Jack. And on the first tee at Pebble, he sort of waved to the crowd and he called for a moment of silence to honor Payne. But as he addressed the ball, he was overcome with you know with the emotion that he had just created, and he actually started to cry. He backed off the shot. Was there just like a, a feeling in the air that, that this was going to be an emotional, incredible, electric US Open, specifically as it relates to Jack Nicholas? Absolutely. No, no question about it. Being the 100th US Open, Jack Nicholas' final one, Payne Stewart, the defending champion, one of the best blokes that's ever played on the tour, not able to defend his championship. It just had everything that was going to make him an electrifying week. Just it, it's just so special when you when you look back at this footage and watch it. Like it's just yeah, it's an amazing U.S. Open. Now, Steve, the second round of the 2000 U.S. Open, um, as we mentioned, it was going to be Jack Nicklaus's last ever round in the U.S. Open because it was quite clear that he was going to miss the cut. And on the par five 18th hole on Friday, uh, which Jack normally played conservatively as a, as a three shotter, three shots to get to the green. He actually hit, he went aggressive and he hit driver from the tee and then he went for the green in two and he actually reached it and he three putted for par and shot 82, but we won't talk about that. Um, we will talk about, there was an iconic scene and um, he was sort of crying and waving to the crowd on the 18th green and as that was happening back in the 18th fairway, Tom Watson, obviously another legend of the game and a fierce rival and friend of Jack's, uh, he was clapping him, kind of giving him like a standing ovation. And only three minutes later, you and Tiger tee off for your second round. And it almost felt like a changing of the guard, or it certainly looked like that on the coverage. Um, how much did Tiger idolize Jack Nicholas? Oh, you know, Tiger's whole career from day one was about trying to equal or better Jack's record in the major championships. Tiger knew every statistic about Jack. His major championship record wins top twos, top threes, top tens. He knew everything. He idolised Jack Nicklaus, and that was the benchmark. So it was a huge moment. Uh, and even you know, I saw you know Tiger. He he took a deep breath there, and amazingly, the swing that he made off the first tee 
on Friday afternoon, his first shot of the second round was absolutely just an amazing golf swing. And really? I, yeah, I mean, I, and I think that was one of those ones. It was just subconsciously, I don't think he even knew that he made a swing. You know, I mean, it was just, <laughs> if you go back and look at that swing, it was an, an unreal golf swing. And, you know, just minutes before, you know, we had to take a deep breath and, and we knew that Jack had just finished. And, you know, like, I mean, Jack's record in the US Open and the major championships, despite the fact that he's won 18 majors, his overall record in major championships will never be eclipsed as far as wins, seconds, thirds, top tens. Um, not even Tiger it was going to eclipse that record. So um, That leads me to my next question. So you could obviously hear the roar from down on the 18th where the ocean is about you know Jack uh, holding his last part ever in the US Open. So obviously you and Tiger could hear that. And, and like you said, Tiger took a moment to himself to absorb the moment, did he? Yeah, absolutely. It was, it, you know, I, I could see he took a deep breath. He, he was taken back by that. Mm. Um, and that was just, it was, it was, it was just another moment of that tournament that was extra special. Um, yeah. And the reason it was so special is because Jack was playing his 44th and final US Open on the course where in 1961, he won his second US Amateur and then he won his third US Open at Pebble Beach in 1972. And he, and sadly he shoots 73, 82 to miss the cut in the 2000 US Open. But you know, he, he left his mark on that, that week before, before Friday, that's for sure. So, Steve, there's a shot I want to talk about in round two, and I bet you you know what I'm about to ask about. <laughs> and, and it's one of Tiger's most famous shots ever. Uh, and it's at the six-hole, very famous par five along Stillwater Cove at Pebble Beach. It sort of wraps around the ocean, and then the fairway plateaus. It splits into a plateau where the second portion of the fairway is, you know, 50 feet up above the first portion of the fairway, and it runs to the green, and the greens kind of looks like it's on the edge of the earth. Now, um, Tiger blocks his drive right off the tee into the rough and then he looks at the shot and I think he's got about 205 yards and he decides to hit a shot that will be remembered forever. It's, it's a seven iron. He takes an almighty lash, hoists it over the cliff and it bounds along the fairway and rolls up onto the green to allow Tiger to have a nice, easy two-part birdie. Can you take us through that shot and just the moments before that? Yeah, look, you know, like... Every other player in the field would lay that ball up. So let's just, <laughs> you know, perhaps John Daly might have been the only player <laughs> that would take that shot on. But so when you get down there and you're carrying for Tiger, like I'd always get to the golf ball before he would. And I, I knew straight away that this was a lie that he's going to have a go at. You just sort of know with him. Yeah. Um, and and wh why was that? Was it a nice lie? Um, I wouldn't say it was a nice lie, but it was a lie that I know he can get the club on. I mean, it, I've said this so many times in that the most underrated part of Tiger Woods' golf game that never gets any mention is his play out of the rough. He is exceptional, and his strength of being able to hold that club face straight through that long rough is, is beyond any player that's played the game. So he never gets enough credit for that. Um, but anyway, we got down there, and I know that you know he, he's going to have a go at the shot, and and you know, he's going to take some wild swing and, and hack this thing out. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And the ball comes out. I mean, it was just, you know, it was just, it was an extra special shot. I mean, that takes a lot of courage, that shot, because, it, you know, if you don't, if you chunk that a little bit or, or you get a little thin of that, it was just go straight into that rock face that you just mentioned. Mm. Um, but not only that, I mean, it's 205 yards uphill, you know, so it's probably played <laughs> about two, you know, just around the 215 mark with a seven iron. <laughs> and he just takes a vicious lash at it. I mean, takes the big, if you if you watch it in slow motion and look at the, 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 the chunk of grass and the earth that he took out was unbelievable. 
and, and and it was just you know but he, he he he's always thought, oh, you know, it's just a, it's no big deal. <laughs> Steve, at the time, how what club in perfect flat conditions would Tiger need to hit the ball two hundred and fifteen yards? Uh, that would be uh, just normally be a five iron. Wow! Yeah. So 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 he's hit it, you know, stronger than two clubs, and under that pressure, that, that, that's just incredible. Yeah, I mean, he just took an almighty lash at it, but um, to be able to get the club face on the ball. Uh, with that much speed and strength is is what you know, like I just alluded to. I mean, mm. to me, the most underrated part of Tiger Woods' game is his play out of the rough. How he managed so often to hit the ball pin high out of any kind of lie from any kind of distance. Yeah, for those listening at home, it's it's worth a Google or a, or a YouTube search. Tiger Woods seven iron two thousand US Open Pebble Beach, and it'll come up. It was j- just an amazing shot. Now, uh, Steve, so, so Tiger climbs to nine under par, but he only manages 12 holes on Friday due to a weather delay, and he returns to finish his second round on Saturday morning. But Tiger had actually taken out, and I know what you, you know what I'm getting to here, Tiger had actually taken out several golf balls to putt in his hotel room on Friday night, so he's obviously still not quite happy with his putting stroke, and he actually forgot to put those golf balls back in the bag. So by the time that you get to the 18th tee on Friday, uh, sorry, on Saturday morning to finish his second round, he snap hooks his tee shot into the Pacific Ocean. And unbeknownst to Tiger, he's now down to one ball in the bag. But you, you were aware of this situation, weren't you? And, and you sort of, you've admitted in the past, it's the most nervous you've ever been in 40 years of caddying. Is that right? Yeah, well, we got, you know, we played, he, he, he got on the, uh, you know, completing his round there first thing in the morning. We played the 13th hole there and he hit it in the left rough there and had to take a big violent lash with a sand iron to get on the green, which he did. And, put a big scuff on the ball. And as he walked off the green, he, he, he threw that ball to a, a, a young man there. And I'm, you know, because it's so early in the morning, I think it was a 6.30 restart. There wasn't you know, the usual amount of spectators who would normally be. And this young boy showing his dad, look, I've just got a Tiger Woods golf ball and it's got Tiger Woods on it. <laughs> yeah, or no, it just says Tiger on it. And I'm almost thinking, geez, I need to go over and get that ball because we've only got three balls in the bag now. I've only got <laughs> two, which is not, you know, not the end of the world. But, you know, so he plays 14, 15, 16, 17, obviously hooks it into the ocean. And he's going to, you know, he, he, we've got the last ball and I'm, I'm trying to tell him that, hey, perhaps Tiger just, you know, hit a two-iron down there and I've got my hand on the head cover. Get your fucking hand off that head cover. I'm hitting the <laughs> and, and I'm trying, I, I don't want to tell him it's our last golf ball. Yeah. I mean. And, and because he, you, you still want to instill confidence for that to, second, sorry, the third shot, the reload. You still want to make a confident swing. So you can't tell him that you're only down to one ball. <laughs> I mean, if I tell him we've got one ball, I mean, he just says, get your, you know, get your ass onto that 17 mile I'll drive and get a, get on the Greyhound bus out of here. <laughs> I mean, I, I've stood on the tee there, and I, I've uh, heard, heard the famous, or I've heard the words saying that you know your pucker is, is shaking. Well, I, I know exactly what that is because my yeah. back five was trembling. <laughs> is I that the most never, nervous you've ever been in your career? Ever? Yeah. I mean, I typically don't get nervous. I mean, you know, I, I, that's one thing I can say when you're caddying. I don't get nervous, but I, I was absolutely shaking. My whole body. Uh, was shaken and uh, you know because if he hits the next one either OB or that we're out of golf balls I mean what do we do now <laughs> and, yeah, and there, was, there was a bit of conjecture at the time because I mean I, I'd have to look this up admittedly I'm not a rules expert and I don't know if you could borrow a, a golf ball from your playing partner that that in itself brings complications but I, I'm, I'm sure that if you went and tried to look for a golf ball somewhere you could potentially be assessed a two-stroke penalty for causing undue delay in that moment, what was going through your mind? Like, did, did you think about where you could possibly get to get a, get a golf ball? My only thought was, 
is he's got to go down and look for that ball. You get from from the moment you get to the area, approximately where that ball is, you get five minutes to look for it. Um, in those days, yep. Can I get from there to his hotel room behind the 18th green into the room up the stairs, get a ball and back? <laughs> I don't know if you're allowed to do that, but in my head, that was the only thing going through my head. You know, Wait a minute. So you legitimately thought about running back to the hotel? Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. That was the yeah. only option. I mean, I don't, that was, we, we were playing a Nike ball and our playing partners weren't using Nike balls. So there wasn't an option to borrow one, you know, <laughs> so that was out of the question. Um, that, and, and that was the only thing. As soon as that first one went in the ocean, I'm thinking, how quick, how long is it going to take me to run 350 yards up the stairs of his room, open the door, get some balls, down the stairs back, 350 yards back to where we are going to be. How long has that taken me? That's all, that's, I was just trying to work that out of my head. Had you needed to do that, I, I'm sure it would have been the fastest you've ever ran in your life. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think I would have amazed myself. So his third shot, because he's reloaded, he actually finds dry land, thank God. But I believe the next shot was nerve-wracking as well for you, wasn't it? Yeah, because now he's behind that tree. And so I'm thinking, well, he's just going to hit the low stinger under it, you know, either put it in the front bunker or just, you know, put it up there, da-da-da-da. No, I'm taking a three-wood out and I'm going to cut it. I'm going to start it out way out in the ocean over there. There's a house over there. I'm going to start it there. I'm going to cut it back. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you've you got to be shitting me here. <laughs> <laughs> Are you thinking, fuck me, Tiger? Now, you're going to start it out of the ocean again? Yeah, yeah. I just like, But he's playing so well. I mean, he's just hit one bad shot. We're all going to hit a bad shot every now and again. Yeah, and he's just playing so well, and he's just thinking, "I've got to make four here. I'm not putting a, this US Open. I'm not putting a double bogey on my card." That's all he's thinking. Yeah, uh, and like when that ball takes off, and I see it cutting towards dry land, it's like that's the biggest sigh of relief. <laughs> and, and amazingly, awesome. okay, we, we, that round's finished. The second round's completed. Not a word said. Nothing said. Sunday afternoon, after he takes the major championship trophy, no, sorry, he, he puts out on the 18th. Goes up there, signs a scorecard. I would go in there and just, you know, check the card. I'd, I'd you know, read out a score just to make sure he double checks it. That's all good. I shut the door and walk down. I'm just walking down the stairs from the room where the players do their scorecard check. Stevie. Yep. And, and, and he said, what was up on Friday afternoon on the 18th? <laughs> I, I told him the story and we laughed about it for years. I mean, it was so just... Tiger Tiger didn't know about that until he won, till Sunday, two Three. days later. Yeah. Wow. How'd yeah. you hide that from him for two days? <laughs> well, he just never asked me. I mean, I just, <laughs> he, I, 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 he, I thought that's good. He's forgotten about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, well, Tiger manages a bogey, I believe, on that disastrous 18th hole. He shoots 69 to move to eight under par and six shots clear of Jimenez, who we mentioned, and Thomas Bjorn, and they're in a share of second. Now, uh, round three, like I just mentioned, the conditions on Saturday were absolutely brutal, and Tiger famously left two shots in the rough at the par four third, where he made a triple bogey, and it was basically his only bad hole of the week. But he still managed to shoot an even par 71 in the third round, can you talk about how impressive Tiger 71 was that day, considering the conditions and considering maybe he wasn't swinging it as well as the other days? Yeah, look, I mean, I wouldn't not, wouldn't say he wasn't swinging it as well. I mean, conditions make it so tough sometimes and you've got to, you know, really, you're, you're hanging on to the club and there's a lot at stake sort of thing. So it's just, you know, you're not freewheeling it so much. But I think the thing that impressed me most and, and, and signified that he was in complete control of what he was doing, when he made a triple on the third hole, you know, he laughed. 
Now, when did you ever see Tiger Woods laugh when he made a double or triple? I mean, <laughs> not often. Did, no, no, never. Not not say not often. Never. But he, <laughs> he he knew, you know, how unlucky he'd been with the two lies that he grabbed in the rough. There, just absolutely impossible. And, and it wasn't like the second shot was that bad. Um, and he just laughed. But that showed me right there how much belief and how calm he was. And he, you know, you know, to make a triple and then come back and shoot even par after making a triple on the third in those conditions, uh, that was remarkable. When, when that happened, did that just sort of indicate to you that this guy is in complete control of his emotions and he, he accepted that triple bogey as just part of the conditions that day and he was able to move on? Absolutely, no question about it. Normally, you know, Tiger Kid's quite temperamental and if that had been any other kind of event and that, um, you know, he wouldn't have just placed that putter down at the golf bag like he did as he walked off the green. The, the putter would have been thrown, the ball would have been thrown, the bag would have been kicked, the glove would have been ripped. <laughs> or, absolutely all those things would have taken place. Now, Steve, after three rounds, Tiger sits at eight under par and he's miles ahead of South African great Ernie Els at two over par. And, and pretty much no one else really matters at this point. Tiger's 10-shot lead was the largest 54-hole lead in the history of the U.S. Open. And we get to the final round, and obviously, Steve, Tiger's in his famous Sunday red and black. He's paired with Ernie, and he starts by hitting six of seven fairways and eight of nine greens, but he only made nine pars. Did he seem patient to you? Because maybe under those conditions, swinging the club that well in in any other event, he might have been pissed off that he hadn't made a birdie yet, but he made nine pars. Did did he seem extra patient on the Sunday? Oh, yeah. I mean, he knows US Open's all about patience. And, you know, I mean, look... You know, after the good solid start, you know, if he had got off to a bad start and that, you know, perhaps he might have let some other guys in if they had a start of well, but he got off to a very solid start on, you know, like it's Sunday, the conditions are not easy. Pars, every par you make is great. You know, he's not going to lose the tournament from here. Um, and of course, he, you know, he he obviously did not want to drop a shot. That was, you know, that, that's the thing that he didn't want to do. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he, he's in complete control. He's playing absolutely perfect. And, I mean, it didn't really matter if he made a birdie or not. But, um, you know, he, he just didn't want to drop a shot. But, and that was, obviously, you saw the emotion after the putty hold on 16. I mean, you, you would have thought that was the, to win the tournament. But that was just <laughs> dropping a shot. Now, Tiger birdies the 10th hole. And then he also birdies 12, 13, and 14. He reaches 12 under par. And, and at that stage, what are you thinking? Are you thinking it's, it's locked up? Well, I mean... You know, basically, when you know the way Tiger operates, and then I mean, he's and he's, you know, starting the shot, starting with the lead he had on Sunday, playing the way he is and swinging the way he was. I mean, really, it was just a, you know, it was just going through the motions to take the trophy. But, but um, it was spectacular to watch, um, like just to stand back and watch the guy play on Sunday and not make a bogey. That uh, was impressive. Yeah, yeah, Steve, you just mentioned his only goal really on Sunday was was to avoid making a bogey. And the way that he was able to do that was he holds a 15-footer for par at the 16th hole. And like you just mentioned, massive fist pump. And then an incredible sand save from the uh, greenside bunker at the par 3 17th. Do, do you know why he he wanted to avoid bogey so badly? Why was that one of his mini goals? Yeah, Tiger always had, you know, every day there was a, you know, he's the goal of winning the tournament. But every single round, be it a practice round, he always had a mini goal. And in and, and, and any kind of practice rounds, there's always a gamble on that mini goal. But he always had an, you know, he always had a, a goal within the goal. That's just how he operated, and that was his goal that day. So, you know, you're out there, you know, when he got to 12 under, and and you see he's got a 15 shot lead. You know, you, you can't actually in today at, at that particular point in time, 
in 2000, it's, you know, you just can't comprehend that a guy can play that well and beat his fellow competitors by that much. It was hard to comprehend. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's incomprehensible. So Tiger shoots. He he, he does he does what he set out to do. He avoids bogey. He shoots a bogey free 67, and at 12 under par, he wins the U.S. Open by 15 shots. I mean. It, nobody had ever seen anything like it and probably nobody ever will see anything like it again in major championship golf. In, in your mind, is that the most dominant performance in the history of the majors? Oh, well, I mean, you know, in the modern game, I don't think that'll be, that's unparalleled. No, no one, will, I, I don't believe we're ever going to see that in major championship golf again. His performance was so dominant, you actually forget who finished second and you forget that it was a tie for second. Ernie at three over par and Miguel Aniel Jimenez. What was it? What was it like for you walking up the 18th hole at the, the very, very famous Pebble Beach with the ocean on the left? What was it like for you soaking up the most dominant performance in the history of majors, helping that golfer to that performance? What was that like for you at, for that victory stroll? Yeah, oh, look, it was, it was huge because you know you had the, the, the U.S. Open to me. When I think about the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, I think about Tom Watson holding that shot on the 17th hole, and then I think about Tom Kite holding that pitch shot on the seventh hole famous moments then tiger woods is going to add his to that on the sixth hole so if you think about the three greatest shots you remember about pebble beach those are the three you're always going to remember uh, and, and to you know to be on the back for tiger when he wins his first us open at pebble beach um, it was just yeah, it was a monster moment yeah and it absolutely was a monster moment steve so I want to read you some stats, courtesy of a combination of ESPN, Justin Ray, PGAtour.com, and the USGA. And I want to sort of get your reaction to them and what you remember about these stats that week. Tiger averaged 299.3 yards with his driver. He hit 71% of greens in regulation, and he averaged 27.5 putts per round with no three putts, and never at any stage was he over par at a US Open. And and to explain why that's so impressive for, for some of the, the listeners out there, the USGA runs the US Open, and they like to make it, they, they call it the toughest test in golf. So they want to test you right from the dri- driver all the way through to the putter. And typically, they narrow in the fairways, they grow the rough up, they bake out the greens, so the greens are lightning quick. And so for, t- for Tiger to, to, to avoid a three-putt the entire week, that is just unheard of at a US Open. Yeah, I mean, he avoided the three-putt because his, his iron play, like I said to you, the Memorial, we go back to the Memorial, a few months earlier, or a couple of, sorry, a few weeks earlier, his iron play was absolutely spot on and he carried that on to the US Open and it was even better. So he was continually hitting the ball on the green, but hitting it in the right spot and his, his proximity to the flag would have been, they didn't have that statistic back then, but I guarantee you his proximity to the flag over 72 holes would have been three to four to five feet great, uh, closer to the hole than any other competitor. Hence, he lessened the risk of having a three putt because his proximity was so good. It's funny you say that because he hit 51 greens in regulation and it wasn't just the most in the field, it was seven more than any other player. Yeah, yeah, and and, and hence, the, you know, didn't three-putt. And a mark of the consistency through the bag, he actually played the par threes, the par fours, and the par fives in four under each that week. So there was no weakness in his game. Yeah, like to play the par threes there, the par threes are a huge part of that course. You play the par threes under par there at any tournament, you're generally going to have a good... A good tournament, and I think that was the, that of that three stats. Although that was the most impressive one, playing those, you know, that, those are some key holes there and some difficult holes. Yeah, I can think of 12. 12 is a brutal par three at Pebble Beach. Yeah, well, you know, obviously when he when that was the final hole he played um, on the you know 
on the second round before it resumed play, uh, and you know that was that was an unbelievable birdie. I think at the yeah. at the time, you know, they said that you know under twenty percent of the field had only hit that green, and you know, and of course, <laughs> and he birdied it. And he birdied it, yeah. Steve, there were four hundred and thirty-seven rounds completed by the field that week at Pebble Beach. Only three of those rounds were bogey-free. Tiger owned two of them. He's opening 65 and he's closing 67. Can you guess, uh, this is a wild one, but can you guess who the other bogey-free round was owned by? Oh, gee, I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah, I'm I testing mean, you here. Yeah, I'm going to go Nick Faldo. No, it was Joe Daly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, that's a, that's a great uh, stat to bring up, yeah. Joe Daly opened with an 83, and then he made two birdies and no bogeys to to shoot a second round 69. <laughs> That's awesome. I know, unreal. Uh, not many people would know that, so don't don't feel bad for not knowing that it was Joe Daly. Uh, so, Steve, I, I want to read you a couple of quotes from some of the greats of golf that week and just hear your thoughts about them. Ernie Els, who'd obviously just finished second to Tiger by 15 shots, he said, it was an awesome display of golf. That's the modern game right there. He's the Michael Jordan of our sport. Can can you believe that that Ernie would make a comment like that? Because it almost sounds like everyone in the field recognised that Tiger's about to sort of separate himself like no other. Well, you know, coming from a guy like Ernie Els, who's one of the best players in the world and one of the most respected players, that's almost like he's saying, hey, this guy's better than me. I've got no chance here. And if I'm saying that, what chance have you got? That's, um, you know, I think he might have regretted saying that because obviously him and Tiger and Ernie had a lot of great battles down the stretch of which Tiger won them all. So I don't think he should have probably said that. <laughs> now, Tom Watson, another legend of the game, he said, everyone else is playing for second place and I think they know it. Um, and and he, so as, as he said it, there was a bit of a wink in his face. So, so it seemed like, you know, Tom, Tom was sort of agreeing with Ernie in a sense that this guy had just proven that he's different from us and I think he's going to be the best player on the planet for the next 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, like I mean, they all—they're all, you know, in awe of what he's doing. And here, you you know, that they're seeing a guy that can not only drive it long, he can drive it pretty straight. He's got no flaws in his game, and he's mentally tougher than anybody. Um, They—they they know that they're going to be in for a tough ride to try and add to their major championship tally while this guy's around. Now, you mentioned it just before that Tiger, after the victory, after he'd won the U.S. Open, he said to you, "Hey, what happened on Friday afternoon?" But did he did he say anything else to you about the victory, or was what 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 were some of the comments that Tiger made to you after the win? Look, I mean, even it, it, it's a fascinating thing with Tiger because he, he wins that championship, and in, after going, you know, he's got to go through the media and he's got a lot of things to do before he gets back to his room. I'm just sitting there waiting for him, having a beer and packing up all his gear and so forth. I was actually heading back to New Zealand, but. His, his attention, I mean, he, he's one and a half hours removed from, 90 minutes removed from putting out on the 18th green. And, and one of the first things he says is, you know, it's on a St. Andrews there, you know, have you got a good feel for the course? Have you got your yards? I mean, he's just, he, like his mindset is just so different to anybody else. I mean, he, he here we are, record-breaking performance. We're in Tiger's hotel room and we're talking about the British Open. I mean, that wouldn't <laughs> that wouldn't enter any conversation with any other pro, but that's Tiger. Uh, I think you've told me once before, didn't you say best you get your ass to Scotland and go to the, go suss out the British Open course? Yeah, absolutely. That was in that conversation <laughs> as well. And, and that that built a lot of inside pressure for me. And, and, and you know, like, I, you know, knowing that 
he knows he's in great form. The next the next championship is the British Open, and, and you sort of feel like you know one of the things that could detract him from winning is me. You know, I've got to make sure I, I do the. You know, it, that built pressure in itself. It was it was mm. not an e- not an easy task heading for Tiger. What was that like for you to sort of not feel that you even got to celebrate it for a moment before you were already thinking about the next major championship? What was that like? Yeah, look, I, I found that you know difficult to to, to deal with, and, and hence a lot of the time that's why I you know like after that time I went back to New Zealand because I could actually go back to New Zealand and enjoy that victory with my family because <laughs> you know Tiger is a sort of a special character and a unique character, and, and he certainly didn't enjoy victories like most people would, would enjoy a victory, and he was just you know focused on the next major championship. Like he he was just so compelled to try and equal or better Jack's record. And that was just one more step in the ladder to get to that. And and, 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 and it, it, whilst it was an unbelievable victory, it's just one step, one more, and and it, and it had no more significance than the last one or the next one. It, it, it makes me want to ask you, Steve, did you get to celebrate that at all? Did you get a moment maybe in the airport or something like that where you got to soak up what you just helped him achieve? Yeah, look, I mean, <laughs> it was a, a flew out of that small Monterey airport there um, to San Francisco and then on to, on to Auckland and of course every person that was on that in that airport on that plane <laughs> you knew that I was Tiger's caddy so that, that, that was pretty exciting just listening to the people like there's a lot of spectators and getting their, their take on it and everything and I mean it's pretty cool to be you know to be part of that Did you get to have a beer in a quiet moment and just, just wonder to yourself like whether he could repeat that performance whether that could he could he ever get as good as that week or like what was the digestion for you after that? Well, you know, I, I thought you know like he's in such good form, you know, we've got we, we've got to get we've got to get a great game plan for St Andrews. I mean, I, that I was I was on the same mindset as him. You know, it's just mm. okay. How we how can we navigate this golf course the best we can? Because um, I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm one of the cogs in the wheel that could let him down sort of thing because you know, <laughs> I, he's not going to let himself down. So um, it, was, it was definitely an unbelievable time, uh, a stretch of golf uh, that Tiger, you know, it started at the start of 2000 and it was, it was an incredible stretch. And finally, Steve, once you touched back in New Zealand, how were you able to soak up that achievement? How were you able to celebrate that with your family? Did you do anything special? Yeah, look, my wife is fantastic. She, you know, she, she always, um, you know, we had like a little celebrity dinner when we get her parents and so forth and that. It was really good to, you know, but certainly not to the point that, that, that you'd think it would be because that mm. was, you know, like I, I became a sort of a clone of Tiger in some respect because he placed so much importance in the tournaments. And once that one was over, I was just thinking of the next one. And, and, and that was, you know, that was probably a poor thing on my behalf to not celebrate like you should, but I, I, that sort of came from working from Tiger, being around him, getting the same mindset and, and just, you know, I spent the whole next, how many days before it was <laughs> thinking about the British Open. Hey, well, spoiler alert, that one's pretty good too. And we'll get to that in the next episode. So I can't wait for you to join me for episode three. And we'll chat about the 2000 open championship at St. Andrews. Thanks for coming on chasing major, Steve. Yeah. Look forward to the next one, Evan. Chasing Majors is proudly brought to you by Bluebet, a true blue Aussie betting company. 